0: Uh, So if you want to open up to there, in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1672. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel had spoke to him and had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? But the men replied, we've come from Cornelius the Centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell me. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days.
1: Thanks Luke. Hey everybody. So if um, you've been here for a couple of weeks, you know that um, Vince got a couple of reps preaching. And so now it's time to have a sports metaphor um, af- after he's not had them for a while. Um, if, if you're from this area and you're a Packer fan and you're excited to see what Montgomery can do this fall and all that kind of stuff, um, let me use two things that are um, very significant in your memory. Um, concerning the Packers to explain a little something about today. So back in 2014, there was a moment in Packers football where we were playing our now rivals, the Seattle Seahawks, and at the very end of the game with no time left, uh, Russell Wilson, who's the Seattle Seahawks quarterback, throws the ball and it's like this lame duck throw into the end zone where there are like nine players. At that moment, a Packer player, Jennings, jumps up and intercepts the ball instead of knocking it out of bounds like a foolish person right? While he's in the process of catching the ball, a Seahawks player reaches in and grabs it also while he's catching it, okay? And then they fall on the ground, and time expires, and one official comes over and says, touchdown, and the other one blows that the game is over, and the Packers win, which then ensued this great fury because the, the call was a touchdown, that because the grabbing was relatively simultaneous... Both teams possessed it, and if the offense team possesses it in the end zone, it's a touchdown, they win. And Packer fans all over America heard people say, the rule is very specific. And all the Packers fans said, then it's a terrible rule, right? The next year, in the playoffs, another close game. It's fourth down, the Cowboys have the ball. Tony Romo throws a fade pass to Des Bryan, who is probably one of the top two greatest receivers on planet Earth, at which point he leaps up in the air, catches the ball, comes down, spins around, does a pirouette, falls down to try to score a touchdown, and as his forearm hits the ball with the ball in it, it kind of pops out, and then he rolls over and catches it in the end zone, at which point he believed devoutly that the question was, am I on the one yard line or is this a touchdown? Woo! But in replay, it was overturned as an incomplete pass To which all the officials said, the rule is very specific And all the Packer fans said, that is a great rule! <laughs> and all the Cowboys fans said, that is a terrible rule, right? And part of how people felt about that, if they were— that Like most of America was like, who cares? Um, <clears throat> But for the people who were fans, who favored their teams and loved their teams and feel like they should get a fair shake, they were, like, they, Packer fans did not feel the same emotional intensity towards these two plays. Like, I think of myself as a very objective person. Like, I'm the guy in the room where, like, you know, everybody would be like, oh, man, we got killed on that call, and I'll be like, well, yeah, you know, that was a good play by the Bears, and people would be like, like, I am that guy. And in both cases, I was—well, not totally, but in, in generally speaking, I was like, yeah, I guess that's the right call. But I did not feel as intensely both times. I felt, like the, I felt like both of them, the rule is bad, and clearly, in a world in which this is a sport, the opposite should have happened in both cases. That's how I feel. I feel like the rule is stupid in both cases. But I felt a lot more like it was stupid in September of 2014. It is a universal fact of all human beings that we are interested in the things that we are interested in. We are interested in the things of ourselves and the things that are like ourselves. It is so fundamentally normal for us to favor that which we like. And so it is, the problem with that is that When you get the things you like mixed up with the things that are objectively universally true and they all kind of work themselves together inside your being, it can start to blur the lines as to what is true and what is valuable. There are the things that are objectively true and universally valuable, and then there are the things that you like and find truthy. And they kind of come all together and it gets all mixed up. And what happens when those get blurred is that we start to engage in what's called partiality or favoritism. For lack of a better definition, here's one. Um, that Favoritism is to favor or give favors for personal interests rather than on the basis of a meaning and merit. That is, you, you do something not because of its inherent meaning or because of the receiver's merit, but really on the basis of what you like or what is in your felt interest. And because of that— favoritism becomes one of the main roots of injustice and one of the areas that's at the heart of human discrimination. If you want a simpler definition, you can try this one. Favoritism is the avoidance of justice for personal reasons. It's the avoidance of justice. What is rightly, objectively, clearly, broadly just for something that you want. And favoritism is actually talked about in the Bible as a terrible sin that leads to many awful things that does not reflect God at all. So, um, I came up with with a sentence. I think it's really cheeky. Favoritism, then, is the golden excuse in every human heart for breaking the golden rule. Favoritism is the golden excuse in every human heart for breaking the golden rule. James almost exactly says this in the Bible, in James 2, 8, 9. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, he calls the golden rule the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, which is originally in Leviticus 19, but Jesus quotes it in the Gospels, then you are doing right. But so what's the opposite of that? But if you show favoritism, You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers Because of course all the law is about justice And any act of favoritism is fundamentally the embracing of injustice For personal reasons Now there's two things that that we'll talk about this morning One is the problem, favoritism and what the Bible says about it, and what we should believe about it, and then also how the gospel and how what God has done has frees us from it. So th- I think the first thing we need to recognize about favoritism is that favoritism is and must be resisted everywhere. Favoritism is everywhere, and favoritism must be re- must be resisted everywhere. It needs to be an act of vigilance on the part of all Christians because it is a universal phenomenon. And the reason it is a universal pho- phenomenon is because Favoritism is a manifestation of pride And pride is always everywhere there's humans, and always has to be combated everywhere where it's found And favoritism often becomes the justification we come up with for whatever we want to do with our pride It is by definition unwarranted favor, and I—one of the things that our pride and favoritism will tell us is, well wait a second Unwarranted favor, I come to this church every week and you tell me that unwarranted favor is good, right? That's what grace is called, right? It's favor that you don't deserve. And now you're like, you can't do favoritism because it's unwarranted favor. And, frankly, being a fan doesn't feel wrong. Like, ultimately, you're be like, unless you love it for a universal value rooted in God, you can't do it. Like, the next thing you're going to tell me is that I can't like watermelon lip gloss because it finds no universal principle in the character of the risen Christ. Which is absurd. I probably could figure out a universal principle in the character of Christ that would validate watermelon lip gloss, but we don't have time to talk about that this morning, Okay. The point is, is that we are free in our expression of our lives and creativity to do favors to the extent to which they adhere to the character of God. And so if you ask yourself the question like, does this mean I can't do a favor? Or if I do a favor for anyone, that's inherently favoritism and therefore fundamentally wrong. Or can I not even like things for non-universal principles? And the answer is, well, just ask yourself two questions. One, does it cause you not to give someone that which justice requires? So let me give you an example of this, and this might be a little controversial, so you could talk about it in your small groups or argue about it over coffee. If you own a vacuum cleaner repair shop, you are the owner, and you need to hire a vacuum cleaner repair assistant, and you have a nephew, and you would like to help out your nephew by hiring him. Can you just hire him? Right? Right? Second example You are a manager at American Family Insurance And a job opens up that would be great for your nephew And your nephew is not the most qualified applicant Can you hire your nephew? Right? Now see, generally speaking, I would say Yes and no to those two situations It's your business and you've created it It belongs to you You have no responsibility to hire any particular person You can do what pleases you In the relationship of this person Of your own goods and business If you are an American family You're supposed to do what your boss wants And what he wants is the most qualified person Not your nephew, right? And so, but you could argue that like No way, you should really just You could argue about that But the point is is you—the you, first question you ask is, do I create an injustice and not give somebody what is due them? Injustice. Not in fairness. Fairness and justice are not the same thing. Remember, Jesus affirmed in Matthew 20, the landowner who had harvesters come in, and some people worked all day long, and some worked an hour— and he gave the people who worked all day long a day's wage, and he gave people that worked an hour a day's wage. And the people that worked all day long was like, that is not fair. And the guy's like, you are right. You are—but right. it's just because I told you if you came to work for me for a day, I would pay you a day's wage. And if I want to be generous with my own money with these other people because they have the same expenses as you, can I do what I want with my own money? And the implicit answer in that parable that Jesus tells is, of course he can. So justice and fairness are not the same thing, and when people conflate those two, you should be suspicious. But, justice is a wider category than most of us want to think. And favoritism hides sometimes in our narrowing properly of the definition of justice. The other question is, does it contradict what, that God shows no favoritism? When you, when you see and believe that there is a God over whatever you're going to do, and that that God shows no favoritism, does what you're about to do prick conscience? So if you go to a restaurant and you can get either the chicken marsala or the lobster bisque and you realize that in the moment of that decision, you serve and live under the rule of a God that shows no favoritism, can you order something? Or if you're going to eat, do you have to order everything on the menu? Right? You, you can order something, right? You don't have to, it doesn't matter, right? Now, you could argue, well, in point of justice, you're favoring the chicken industry over the lobster industry, right? So you love Arkansas more than Maine. Yeah, argue that. I, I'm not interested in that argument. I'm sorry, right, right? But the point is is that, however, in the Bible, in Colossians and in Ephesians, of the places in the New Testament where the New Testament Murray says, because God shows no favoritism, think about what you're doing. Both of those are in relationship to slavery. Both Ephesians and Colossians, God um, is—Paul is writing about the structure of the family. He talks about wives and then children, and then he gets to household bond servants who are essentially slaves. And he says how slaves and masters should relate to each other. And then he says at the end of that, he says, but remember, you serve a God in heaven who is your master who shows no favoritism. Which is why most Christian theologians have said this is the reason why the New Testament can not directly outlaw slavery, and yet every Christian civilization in the history of the world has outlawed slavery. Because in it is the implicit problem of, can the institution of slavery exist in the face of a God who shows no favoritism? The answer is, not really. So if, if you ask those two questions, and whatever favor you wish to show somebody does not prick a conscience, then it's probably within the realm of favor that you're free to show out of grace or, or discretion. But if it does, but you still want to do it, it's probably favoritism. And if, you're, if you wonder about it, that is a great thing to have to talk with, with a spiritual friend or a mentor who is not as personally invested in the decision as you are. The, the next thing is, is that we have to recognize that the problem of favoritism is everywhere. It's everywhere. And the Bible affirms that it's everywhere. For example, in Exodus 23, 2 and 3, it says this, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not ju- pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now think about that for a second. What that means is, is that favoritism that is born out of compassionate sentiment is still a perversion of justice. That's what that verse says. Who doesn't want to be like, oh man, that guy's poor. He should get a break. But that verse explicitly says that's a perversion of justice. What it also says is, if public opinion is against you, You want to be in their favor, and you want to give them the favor that they want, which is that I agree with you. Whatever my voice means, I agree with you. And what this text says is that is a perversion of justice. That which we use our voice for has some relative shaping of the opinion of people, which decides what is morally conceivable, You can say you don't like this law or that law, but what our laws are are that which is already conceivable in the public mind, and the public mind is the crowd. And when we go along with the public mind, instead of saying, no, that's wrong, we pervert justice when we favor the poor. Beyond what their argument elicits, it's injustice. But there's also a verse in um, Leviticus 19 that says this, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor, or... Favoritism to the great But judge your neighbor fairly So imagine a court case in which you've got a poor guy And you've got like a rich, important guy And they're arguing in court And what he's saying is, look, there's a lot of you who'll think this He'll Be like, look The poor guy's just trying to get by This guy probably did something, he's got all the power He's got all the assets, he's got all the lawyers Like, the poor guy's probably right This other guy's probably lying And you would judge that naturally in your intuitional bigotry On the basis of the station of either person and it's, it comes from human sympathy. It's perfectly natural. It's also perfectly a perversion of justice. Or you might say, well look, rich people are always getting attacked and like, you know, he, you know he, there's, there's something to get here and this guy's probably coming after him and everybody's sentiment's naturally gonna go for the poor, so this, we should listen to this guy. And what the argument is is like, you should do neither of those things. The fact that this guy is rich or that he's important doesn't matter in justice. The fact that this person's poor and that your, your sympathy goes out to them, doesn't matter What matters is their arguments And the evidence On the basis of which you try to get at the truth As best you can know it Which should demonstrate what is just Which has nothing to do With what they brought to the table In their in their person or assets Now that is That is not exactly The cultural churn And yet If favoritism is found everywhere in our relationship to the public mind, in a relationship to the poor, or people that don't have, or in relationship to our sentiment, in terms of our avarice and our desires. If we, if we can't trust our desires to take in, nor our sentiments to go out, what can favoritism not infect? And the answer is nothing, because pride can infect everything. And so we have to have a certain kind of vigilance to look for favoritism because it's naturally going to be everywhere. Another thing about the problem of favoritism that we have to see with open eyes is that it naturally and strongly clings to culture and culture's signals. I try to explain this as clearly as I can and as briefly as I can. People often believe that people who engage in prejudice and bigotry and racism and those kinds of things and discrimination do it simply because they just hate the other person. Okay? Now that that may be true, but it is an unsophisticated form of what every human being naturally does, and that is this. Every human being has a certain parameters of values and an order of those values, and they're looking for relative matches in other people. Because when they feel like they think there are relative matches in other people, they can extend trust to that person, and that person becomes part of their functional tribe that they cross utilize to survive in the world and to flourish in the world. And so people go around either, either just sometimes just in their intuitions. It's just how they feel. And some people are more cycle, mental about it. But there's a certain set of are these values there? Are they ordered this way? Will we naturally agree? If something comes up, will they naturally do what I would do? Is there synergy between us? Is there shared culture? And because we don't know everything about everybody, we will naturally, intuitionally look for markers that tell us that match is there or isn't there. Sometimes those are accurate, sometimes they're not accurate. And some of those things that that will mark the possibility of a cultural match or non-match, are race, our ethnicity, our nationality, our language, accepted forms of dress, accepted patterns of speech, accepted uses of money, and so forth. What kind of car you purchase, like, honest to God, when I was in the South, if I pulled up in a pickup truck, people treated me differently. Here, if I pull up in a Prius, people treat me differently. Because, and it's not because like, oh, well, you got a Prius, you must be rich. It's, that's not the reason. It's because when I, if I, I've never driven a Prius. So in fact, I, I drive a Ford Ranger pickup truck just to spite them here, okay? <laughs> and I drove a Saturn that got 36 miles a gallon in Florida. Just, I'm just contrary, okay? But the point is, is that, it's and we go well wow, bigotry is bad. Okay, yeah, bigotry is bad. Absolutely. But listen, what that how do you deal with it? What do you do about it? right? Our whole nation is all a flutter with like, oh, racism and discrimination, but there's no conscientious discussion of how it endures, why it exists, why it's a positive human adaptation, and that you don't just go, oh, that's bad, don't do it, and solve human behavior. It has to be replaced by something, because our brains think fast, and they think slow, and they think prejudicial when they think fast, and there's nothing you can do about that. The only thing you can do is have the discipline because of a deeper universal value to say, wait a second, I don't think that. Wait a second, I don't think that. Wait a second, that has to be confirmed. Wait a second, that doesn't work. Wait a second, that's probably right, but because of what I believe about Jesus, I'm going to act like it isn't, and I'm going to sacrifice personally if anything bad happens to me. That's how it functions, because— Favoritism flows through prejudice and the markers of culture because the cultural matching through which we extend trust, build a tribe, and try to flourish, it's a universal human phenomenon. And so human beings, when they see somebody dressed like that, or acting like that, or talking like that, or buying like that, or getting educated like that, or procreating like that, or whatever, and they go, oh, that's an indicator. They could be part of my tribe, or they couldn't be part of my tribe. Human beings have been functioning like that since there have been human beings. It is extraordinarily durable, and it's actually a mechanism of efficiency that your brain uses so that you can get through the day. So the only thing you can do to stop that is cutting off your own head, okay, or two, You take the fast thinking, and you move it over here, and you rethink the slow thinking. And you say, okay, what do I believe? What do I think? It's the area where your brain can function in rationality. And you work through what's valuable, what's true, what's right, what's universal, what God thinks, what Christ has done, and all of this. And you work it through, and you work it through. And then you come to worship, and you physically do it with your body while you sing it out, while you emote in it, and while you think through the words, and you try— to holistically crosswire all those things so that your fast thinking starts to come around and so that your convictions play over and take control over your reactions. Because favoritism clings to culture. And the first indicators people naturally and automatically look for are things like race, ethnicity, language, nationality, and so on. And unless we understand that and understand the dynamics, we cannot go through a process of spiritual discipline, spiritual reformation, or, nor can we apply faith in a way that will really change us. We will still just be modifying our behavior to not do the newest thing that we'll get punished for publicly in the modern shame culture we live in right now. But I don't want to just not get in trouble in the press. I want to be a loving person that favors people the way God favors people and who doesn't show favoritism. I could care less what the press thinks of me most of the time when I'm trusting in Jesus rather than functioning in my fast thinking for my own self-preservation another area where i need to grow spiritually and then lastly it's enormously serious sometimes we think favoritism we think of favoritism kind of like a lot of people think about gossip that yeah it's sort of bad but it's like it's like reading people magazine it's like a tantalizing minor venial sin you know rather than diving into a bathtub full of gossip and life destruction and glorification of sin. It isn't. Favoritism not only is itself an evil, it's actually a lot bigger than that. That is, one, it's a reversal of the very word of God. God says, he speaks a universal and eternal word and says, this is true. And when we engage in favoritism, we say, no, it isn't. We take his universal values and statements of truth, and we say, this is not the most relevant thing. What is, is what I want, and what I think is important, and that which resembles me, and if I give to it, it will move back towards me. That's what's the most important thing. It is a reversal of the word of God. It is entirely contrary to the gospel. The message of Jesus is that God himself came to people who are universally valuable and universally sinful. We're all exactly the same in relationship to the gospel. And that through his death and resurrection, we, through absolutely no merit of our own, can freely come to God and everybody can do it. It is absolutely the direct and universal favor of God. The minute we say, but, what, huh, no, uh, on any principle of distinction other than the exact principle God gives— We're not engaging in just being distinctive. We're engaging in being discriminatory. That is the difference between the two. It's also a rejection of God's rule. We're we're saying implicitly, God isn't king. We're taking something, which is the favoritism we're using, and we're setting it up as the thing that will really get us what we want. Because we can't trust God to get us what we really want. Instead, we're going to take me doing what my peers want so that they'll be good to me. And so that favoritism becomes my idol in my teenage years or college years or climbing the corporate ladder years. Or I take some other kind of favoritism. I'm going to do you this favor. I'm going to move you ahead in line with the authority that I've got because I know later you're going to move me ahead in line because of the authority you've got. A perversion of justice. But what I really believe in to get me what I want, that's your God and you're saying God isn't God when we do that. It's idolatry. In the Bible, that's a negative category, okay? And it leads to many sins, many things that are wicked and foolish and ugly. Favoritism isn't just his own sin. It is a manifestation of pride that justifies the will of pride, and pride is the fountainhead of all human sin, so to indulge in favoritism is to indulge in what grows and swells and fertilizes pride, what hides what pride is, and what unleashes it into all areas of humanity. I mean, it's like the worst possible multiplier effect to everything destructive. It's really serious. And so... I say that not to be like, hey, man, you guys are bad, and I'm bad, and we're all bad. We are. You are. But that's not the point. The point is there should be a vigilance of soul in us, a conviction that I'm not going to live in that. That's not how my life is going to be counted. That's If I get ahead, that's not how I'm going to get ahead. If I have to lose face publicly and lose my good name because I don't favor the crowd but I say what I believe is true, whatever it is, whatever the cost, I, I'm going to be vigilant as it grows in my own heart and I'm not going to give myself to it. Jesus is, Jesus is God, not the idol of whatever favoritism I want to give myself to. God help me, right? There, there has to be a convictionalness about it, a passion about it. But it also has to be displaced, right? You, it never works just to be like, do less of whatever bad thing you're doing. What has to happen is you have to, you have to get to the point where you see how beautiful a thing it is, how good a thing it is, how honorable a thing it is, and how true a thing it is, that God's favor is perfectly principled. God shows no favor to them. He's not confused about his favor. He's not confused about what we should affirm and not affirm, he's not confused about any of that stuff. He's never been confused about it. He never will be confused about it. And when we understand how and why he favors and what he does, our response can and should be that it's enormously great. And this comes up a number of times in this passage. For example, in 34 and 35, Peter begins to speak. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts. Men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And I know a lot of people, especially if you're more secular um, or skeptical about Christian faith, you see fear him and you're like, oh, so there it Like is. got to fear this, like, oh, God. The reason why that phrase is used throughout the Bible is it has to do with that God is worth fearing. God is sort of a big thing, and he has very specific moral views, and it's worth having a certain amount of fear. But it, it mainly is meant to distinguish between... The, the majority of those who will pay lip service to something and those whose faith or belief in God is so fundamentally grounded that they act as though a God who is serious business is really there. That's really what fear him means in most contexts in the Bible. It's not—in most contexts, it's not specifically reference to fear. It's a reference to faith that makes a difference. It, it, it's a reference to faith that actually really— Actually, really, really, actually, and actually, really functions as though God is actually, really, really, actually, really there. And that distinction has to be made when speaking to human beings. If you've had any experience with human beings, saying they believe anything. A few verses later, it says this in 42 and 43. He commanded us, that is, the risen Jesus commanded us, Peter and the other witnesses, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is, the way God extends forgiveness and saves all people who trust him is by means of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that every single person who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. And and what you see there is one of the most fundamental things that every Christian needs to recognize, and it's very difficult in a culture that calls all distinction discrimination. That you have to be able to stand there and see that God is a God who does not discriminate and then yet holds distinction. It's one of the reasons why there was a Jewish law at the beginning of the Bible in the first place. Two places in Leviticus, God says, You must hold the distinction between this thing and that thing. You have to be able to see that there's a, there's a fundamental unity to everything, and yet there are things that aren't other things. Good is not evil. High is not low. Truth is not false. And that there, within the expansive universalness of God, There's also fundamental distinctions that he makes about the nature of reality, and so here, both these are clear. Peter says, I see now that when I preach the gospel about Jesus, it really is for everyone. And I didn't realize that before. Not really. It's for everybody. Every tongue, tribe, nation, people, anything. And at any point in their life. Because because the dynamic is forgiveness, not being more good than bad or something— It means that no matter how long you may have been terrible or unfaithful or hypocritical or how long you may feel like you've been faithful, ultimately what this comes down to is whether or not we turn to God in faith and faithfulness right now and receive a free forgiveness that comes from Jesus. So the undiscriminatory nature isn't just broad in terms of all nations, peoples, genders, races, etc. It's also no matter where you are in the the process of your life, Wherever you are in the process of your life, or whatever kind of life you have within the distinctions of creation, the gospel is for you. And yet, the forgiveness comes on condition of faith. That's the distinction. What distinguishes all humanity is not whether they're Jewish or Gentile, not whether they're male or female, not whether they're nice or not very nice, not whether they're American or non-American, not whether they were born in this century or centuries past. It's none of those distinctions, but there is a distinction. And it is a distinction that is not discriminatory because it's a distinction that all people have access to, and that is faith. Whether or not you will submit to and believe in that God is God and that Jesus is the, the died and risen Christ for you through whom free forgiveness flows if you'll accept it and believe it. Not only are God's principles of favor perfectly principled and, therefore, not discriminatory but still distinctive. They've always been that way. God's perfect principles are perfectly consistent. In fact, it says in that passage in Acts that not only did Jesus say what is saying, but he said, and all the prophets testified to this. That is, all the Old Testament— the two-thirds of the Bible that precede the New Testament—it all says this. In fact, if you go to the Bible, it's really clear. The, the Bible starts with who? Which which humans? Adam and Eve come first, right? Right? Because the Bible starts with the first human beings, not the first Jews. Why? Why not start with Abraham? It's a Jewish book, right? Why did the Jewish Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which was the Jewish law for the Jewish people to fulfill the Jewish promises, why doesn't that just start with Abraham? It starts with Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve are the first humans. Because the story of salvation that flows through the whole Bible is for all of humanity. Even when you get to the promise to Abraham, the second great chapter, starting in Genesis 12, especially through till about 18, there's this promise given to Abraham that's going to make him distinct among all the peoples of the earth. But even in the first giving of the promise, what does it say? You're going to be a blessing to who? Just your lineage? No, it says, to all the peoples of the earth. As you move the the Old Testament, you get to the last of the big prophets, Isaiah, and the last ten chapters of Isaiah is how this Messiah is going to come, this anointed Jewish Savior who's going to fulfill all the Jewish writings, and it says, and yet it's too small a thing that you would only save the house of Jacob, that is, the Jewish people, but all the Gentiles. It says, even the people in the farthest distance, the phrase Isaiah uses, the islands. The furthest little Micronesian islands, uh, uh, everyone to the very ends, all of them are going to be invited to this Savior. And then even as Peter thinks about this over the years, think about this for a minute, this happens— a little while, maybe even a, couple, a few years after Pentecost. But in church tradition, the reason why Mark's gospel, the second gospel in the Bible, is accepted as authoritative is because church tradition says that Mark and Peter were very close traveling companions, and the content of the gospel of Mark is mainly ascribed to Peter as the main primary witness. And so Peter has this experience, and he's, he's working with Mark on his gospel years later, and there's this place in Mark's gospel where Jesus all along has been showing that he's the Messiah to the Jews. And it's before—it's it at, at, in Ma- Mark chapter 8 is where there's this realization that he's the Messiah, and then he starts explaining that he's the suffering kind, not the conquering kind. But right on the cusp of that, right before he's confessed his full Messiah, and while he's explaining that he's the suffering kind, right on that cusp, Peter explains to Mark as he writes this gospel how Jesus actually taught all the stuff in Acts 10 already. There's this argument in chapter 7, which is one of my favorites because shrimp is one of my favorite foods, where the disciples are coming to this place where there's other like Jewish leader guys, and they don't like wash their hands in this little basin, right? And the, the, the Pharisees, who are these Jewish leaders, go, why don't your disciples do the ceremonial washing? Now, note in the text, if you read Mark, you should— Read later today if you want. It explicitly says it's a ceremonial washing. That is, they don't come back from the marketplace to eat, and because their hands are filthy, they actually get in there with soap and water and scrub like they're going into surgery. That's not what happens. What happens is, recognizing that they were just in an area with a bunch of unclean Gentiles of another race, and they're now coming back among the safety of their own Jewish people, they do a ritual cleansing to recognize before God that they're back in the cleanliness of the Jewish people. It's a ceremonial washing. And so, you know, all of Jesus' nose pickers come up to the table, and these guys are like, what the heck is going on, right? And they're like, you should be doing this. And, and they're like, you know, we've got— and it says right in the text, Mark goes, they had, they had all kinds of rules how to wash a kettle and how to wash a cup and like all these special washing rules, right, that aren't in the Torah, in, the, in, the, in God's divine law. And so Jesus, like, based, first he just like, you guys are unbelievable hypocrites, and he gives an example. And then he says, listen— It's actually not what comes out of What goes into a person that makes them unclean It's not their dirty hands touch food And then they eat it and now they're unclean It's not that some Gentile Brushed up against them And now their whole body is unclean And that if they touch the bagels Like everybody who touches the bagels is now unclean That's actually not how it works Here's how it works Our hearts are full of sin A selfish Raging Indifference to or hatred towards God in which we do all things for and to ourselves And those things come raging out of us The bagels go into our stomach, and then he goes, and then out of the body But out of our heart, he says they never enter the heart But it's out of the heart, the seed of who we are comes out, all this Newsflash, the uncleanness is already in there And then it says right after that, in doing this, Jesus declared all foods clean Right? And you're like, awesome! Shrimp and barbecue, right? But the very next passage, it says, Jesus went to the vicinity of Tyre, which is a non-Jewish, super profligate, uber-Gentile region. Okay? And there, this woman finds out that he's there, who, it sa- who Mark says not only does he say she's Syrophoenician, so she's Syrian and Leban- northern Lebanese, but she, it also literally says she was a Greek. Like Mark explicitly says, a Greek, a woman who is from Syrophoenicia, comes to Jesus and says, my daughter has a demon, will you heal her? And that's the famous Jesus-doesn't-like-women example where he, she, he goes, well, I can't heal your daughter because it's not right to take the food that the children have at the table and throw it to their dogs. And her response is this, there's—food falls from the table to the dogs, and dogs get to eat what falls from the table. Now, on one level, you're like, well, huh? think about that in the context of the whole thing. What she's, what she's arguing is something that these, the, 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 the Jewish leaders were basically saying, there's not enough effluence of God's abundance that you have to do your little similar washings washing so you're not okay. She's saying, look, there's enough that just falls off the table onto the ground that you can just eat off the ground. And it's plenty for the dogs to survive and to thrive and to live. And she's like, that's all I want. And I know it's there. And he's like, you know, for that answer, your daughter is healed. You just, you just go on there, girl. You, you, you've got that going. And then what does he do? And it's not over. Then he goes to the Decapolis, which is this area of 10 cities, which is predominantly Gentile. He heals this guy, who I think was a paralytic, which creates this big crowd. There's like 4,000 people, and so he feeds them. He gets seven loaves of bread, and he blesses them. He gives them disciples. They break it all up, and they feed everybody, and then they all get into a boat to go somewhere else, okay? And then Jesus says, you need to be careful about what the Pharisees are like. Or he says, the yeast of the Pharisees. That is, there's something that's gotten in there that churns and grows— Does that remind you of any sin we've been talking about? And then they go, wait, are you saying this because we don't bring enough bread? And Jesus goes, no. Oh, guys, come on, come on, come on, come on. Okay, let's go back. Because just a few chapters, he feeds 5,000 Jews, right? He goes, go back to when I fed the 5,000. He said, what happened? How many big basketfuls did you pick up after I broke those loaves? And they go, 11? 11 or 12, I can't remember. He says, Okay. And I—we just fed these people, and there were 4,000. And how many—there were seven loaves. How many basketfuls, big basketfuls did you pick up of just extra pieces? And they go, seven. Get it? Food that falls from the table. How many extra pieces did you pick up? Right? And he goes—and then he doesn't explain it. He just says, do you still not understand? You see what arguing? He's saying— it's not the Jewishness. It's not our cleansing. It's not that all that stuff. What I've come to deal with is the sin that resides. It's not the external uncleanliness. It's what comes out of our hearts. That's what's got to go. All the food is fine. And the Syrophoenician woman, she understands that the, there's basketfuls of leftovers. And anybody who comes to Jesus finds what they're looking for in Jesus. It's there. They're just— basketfuls of leftovers. Dogs can scurry around under the two-year-olds, throwing stuff over their shoulders. There's just that much, and they're taking it, and they're eating it, and they're enjoying it, and they're full of it. And then he heals her, and then he goes to this Gentile region, and he feeds 4,000. Just like he fed the 5,000 Jews. And he's like, don't you see? There's plenty. And do the Jews have a favored position? He fed 5,000 of them. There's 11 basketfuls of overflow. But every Gentile Of the four thousand of them came Everyone ate, everyone ate enough And there were seven basketfuls left over Why do we want more weight? There's just so much And then he says, right, don't you understand And in this passage In Mark 10 Not Mark 10, Acts 10 How many times Does the sheet come down and go back up And God goes, kill and eat And Peter goes, I'm your show And he goes, don't call anything I have called clean unclean Or anything I've called pure and pure. And then it goes up, and then he does it again, right? How many times? Three times. There's only one other time in the Bible where Jesus says anything to Peter three times. Do you know what it is? It's in John 21, where Jesus says, feed my sheep. Feed them. Feed them, feed them, feed them, feed them. There's plenty. There's plenty. There's plenty. The feet, don't you understand? Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't discriminate. There's one distinguishing principle. Will they come to Jesus? Will they submit to the reign and rule of God? Will they come to Jesus in faith and live it out in faithfulness? That's it. It's trans-cultural, trans trans-race, trans-everything. It can go anywhere among any people in any way. It's one of the reasons why the the cultural law was retracted and the gospel was sent out as simply as possible so that the gospel could go into any culture and revolutionize and transform that culture still as its culture. It's one of the reasons why Christianity looks entirely different when you go other places in the world, whereas Reformed Judaism doesn't. It's... It's just God's principles are completely universal. They are no respecters of person. God has no favorites. There is no favoritism. America is not God's special nation. You are not God's special person more than the person sitting next to you. You are. You're a special snowflake just like everybody else in here. There's no one quite like you just like everybody else in here. And the same non-favoritism of God, but yet this enormous abundance of his favor is there for us. It's there for all. And we're just supposed to, like, dump it out on people and pick up basketfuls and fling them around. There's a process to it. One of the things that—oh, wait, before I do that, just really quick— it's really important to recognize what are the things God favors. What are the things that, if we align ourselves with them, we will favor things the way God— is. the one, the value of his own glory. God values everything exactly the way it should be valued, and the most valuable thing that there is is God. And he values his own glory Supremely, because he should, because it is the most valuable thing that there is. That people would see him and know him for who he is and respond to him for what he's like, and all of that is extraordinarily valuable to God, because it should be, and also the value of every human being, not because of you're good at math or because you've been a good boy or girl or because your family's none of that matters. It doesn't matter your race, is how old you are, whether you're good looking or not. The only thing that matters is, is that as a human being, you bear the image of God. That is the most valuable thing about you, and it's entirely ubiquitous among, among all humans. Every human has it. Period. And he values that. He values real faith. Not lip service, but real faith. Faith that actually does something in people. And he values faithful obedience. And he sp- supremely values the Savior. And the work he has done through his death and resurrection to offer forgiveness and the favor of God to every one of us, continually. Now, this is usually a process. Remember what I was saying about thinking fast and thinking slow and how we look for these cultural indicators? That's how everybody, everybody functions. That's just like our, our psychological, sociological biology. But listen, because of that, it's kind of a process to continually combat and be vigilant toward and root favoritism out of our lives. And if you look at Peter, it's even a process for him and for the Jews that were with him in this place, right? So like at the beginning, God just says, listen, this is the way it is, and what does Peter do? uh oh. Like he thinks God's tricking him or something. He's like, hey, here's a coconut shrimp. You know you want it. He eats him. he's like, I got you! Like that—I mean, Peter's a little like, oh, are you sure? You're just testing me, right? And so it takes three times for him to be like, okay, okay, I'll kill and eat, okay, right? But he's still not really into it. So when he shows up at Cornelius's house, he says, "Listen, I'm here and God showed me that whatever he calls clean, anybody he calls clean, I shouldn't call unclean. So here I am. What do you want?" Right? And then they say, "Well, this angel appeared to us and we want to hear the gospel and we love God." And look, and he's kind of like, "What the heck is going on?" And so they tell him all this and he says, "Man, how true it is. I realize that God shows no favoritism." And then he shares the gospel, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. Him and all the other Jewish Christians are astonished that the the Holy Spirit falls even on the Gentiles. You know, here's one of the things that's funny about this passage, okay? So Cornelius is from what group of people? He's from the Italian regiment, right? So if we're going to infer race on anybody in the Bible, right, this is the most clear racial inference that we could say this is probably a white guy, right? This is the funny thing. In the Bible, it's like crazy that God could save a white guy. I mean, they're just—these people are like astonished. They're like, oh my gosh, this white guy from Italy loves Jesus. This is crazy, and God is giving him the Holy Spirit. Like, we can't—now we can't stop him from becoming a Christian. God already made him one. Now we got to keep him, right? And so then they're like, well, I guess we got to baptize them now. Like, and baptism is the affirmation that this person— that we, the gathered church, recognize, and that person recognizes that they're taking on the name of Jesus, and they're really a Christian. And so they're like, well, now we got to baptize them. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 11, they are called to defend their action to all the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The whole chapter is all about them being like, look, what were we supposed to do? God do! But at that point, He's bold. Peter defends the right of the Gentiles. By the time you get to chapter 15, Peter's saying, not only do the Gentiles have the right to be saved, we shouldn't try to make Jews out of them, and we shouldn't make it difficult for them to come in. It's a process. And like when I look at that, I mean, honestly, I'm somewhere between three and four racially. I'm somewhere, I'm somewhere in like one and two for certain ideologies. That I think are crazy And I look at those people and I think There's no way we can be a team Like you're out there And and if God's like no I want that person I'd be like are you sure I mean like they are way I mean you'd have to change their mind about everything So they think a lot more like me If you say "Like I, I mean I know I feel that way about some people You know But There is this movement that happens When we don't just fight favoritism, we replace it with a real conviction about the gracious favor of God. We have to have a greater identity in Christ and a greater valuing of what God favors. Those, those five things I said that God favors—his own glory, his image in people, real faith, drawing people in to honestly try to be faithful to him in whatever culture they find themselves in— and in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that he supremely is locus of all salvation for all people. That's what God values. And if we have such an identity in Jesus that we are drawn into supremely valuing those things, it will generate conflict inside of us for all the, all the things that we favor that don't go along with that. And then through this process of spiritual disciplines and living with the church and among Christian people and having mentors and praying and seeking God and all those sorts of things, that conflict will be resolved as Christ pushes and changes the areas where we're drawn to favoritism. Because here's the thing, we're not supposed to be, we're not good people, we're supposed to belong to Jesus and when we belong to Jesus and when we receive his forgiveness and when we walk with him he begins to make us more like himself and he's going to come after our favoritisms for our good and for the good of all people and that will work and that'll produce an enormous amount of joy and it will make the gospel glorious in the eyes of people and it will really help people around us and we have the opportunity especially in a culture that is so racked with an inability to really get to the point of deep community beyond cultural markers, beyond race, beyond ethnicity, beyond language, beyond those things, to really become one together. Our culture has not found a way to do that. And we've tried so many principles to do it, so many political principles, so many programmatic principles, so many ideological principles to do it, and it doesn't work. It, it, it changes people's behavior a little bit But all we, now, now what we're working on is this nationwide enormously strong shame culture That is steered by people that I don't know can even think in clear propositional thoughts sometimes It's so confused that, And I'm just going to tell you right now in case your predictive skills aren't attached to this one It's not going to work It's not going to work because racism and discrimination and all those things come from the uncleanness of the human heart. And only that which can transform the human heart can really bring human beings together. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would Show us what it means to see Jesus, who was himself an ethnicity, because every human has one, himself a gender, because every human has one, himself a certain height and wore certain clothes and all those particulars, but he was committed to the universality of your favor, to anyone who would put their faith in you and follow you, and anybody who would turn to the work of Christ, And anybody who would recognize that you are glorious and worth, are worth reverentially fearing in that they would live as though they believe in you. And to see the real value of every human person around them, undistinguished by race or gender, ethnicity or language or any other divisions of the thousands of divisions that we create in our favoritism. I pray right now, Father, you would help each one of us to see and identify favoritism functioning in our lives, that you would right now help us to repent of that favoritism, that you would help us to interpose and replace it with your own favorous, gracious principles that are perfect and consistent, and that inside of us, over time, you'd move us to a place where our reactions and our intuitions and so on are more in line with your universal truth and favor and value rather than our own reactionary self-interest. I pray that anybody here who hasn't put their trust in Jesus for those things, I pray that seeing what favoritism does to people and what will do to them, that just that would be enough for them to run to you right now in their own mind and heart. And to ask you in and to ask you to forgive their sins and ask you to be their king and God, knowing that you will do the miracle of regeneration inside their hearts and minds. Your Holy Spirit will fill them and that they will belong to you and you will take them through this process to become what we don't can't even dream right now. I pray these things in Jesus' name.